Brother Wayne, in his uh, very beautiful and fervent prayer, mentioned twice, as I recall, something that is very precious, something that we should view as very precious, and that is the unity uh, that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. The unity that exists here in this congregation is something that we should certainly never take for granted, but treasure as a priceless uh, treasure and seek diligently to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul wrote in the Ephesian letter. And in this Philippian letter, which we are studying now on Sunday nights, we are in a section of this great epistle, Paul's love letter to the church at Philippi, as it has often been called because of that deep affection that he had for the church at Philippi. He is dealing with unity, as we noticed last time in the first four verses of chapter Remember those verses? Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. We had mentioned that the late Winfred Clark as I recall, had designated this second chapter of Philippians the self-emptying life, the self-emptying life. And that really is a key to unity, isn't it? That I consider others better than myself and that I am looking to be unified based upon not my selfish uh, ambition but viewing others and their needs above my own. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we notice that there was the motive for Unity, And in these first four verses we've just reviewed, a, a, a strong plea for unity, where in verses 2 through 4, the attitudes and actions that result in unity were set forth, as we studied last time. But as we begin tonight and look at verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, we see Paul's final appeal for unity, if you will. Here's the crowning characteristic that we should seek to to emulate, the crowning character that we should seek to emulate, the Christ himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's not a very long verse of scripture, but it is filled to overflowing with, with meaning. In fact, this section of Scripture, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, has been, has been viewed and should be viewed as one of the most beautiful and profound sections of, of Scripture anywhere in the New Testament. Because as we go through these verses, verses 5 through 11, we will see, first of all, what Jesus enjoyed with the Father in his pre-incarnate condition before he humbled himself and took upon himself the form of humanity. It is a very clear affirmation by the inspired apostle Paul of the deity of Christ. And yet it also clearly affirms the full humanity of Christ. And everything that he was willing to become, everything he was willing to give up in order to become the sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. 
In this immediate context, when the Apostle Paul calls upon his readers to have the mind of Christ, the specific context deals with the, the humility that Christ manifested. But there's oh so much that can be seen in principle from this statement concerning the kind of mind that we should have as we seek to emulate Christ in all areas. Let's take a few moments and, and simply look at the word mind itself in a, in a brief acrostic and see the characteristics of the mind of Christ that should be in us as well. Let me suggest to you that that the M could remind us of the meekness of Christ. That strength under control, that, that uh, meekness is defined as being so many times. Remember Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, the greatest invitation ever, ever extended by the greatest who ever walked the earth. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek, the King James says, gentle, the New King James says, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am meek and lowly in heart. The humility of Christ, and yet the strength of Christ, a strength under control. That is how often uh, meekness is defined. And we should emulate that gentle strength, that strength under control. Not weakness, that's not meekness. Christ was strong, but meek, gentle, lowly in heart. But let the eye suggest the interested mind of Christ. Christ was interested above all else in doing the will of the Father as he walked upon this earth. I have come to do the will of the Father, he said. I do nothing of myself. All that I do is in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. In John 10 and verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. We are one in purpose. We are one in nature. We are one in doctrine. We are completely unified. And my will is his will. Interested in those things that please the Father as we should be as well. Set your mind on things above, Paul wrote in the Colossian letter, not on things on the earth. Set your mind. As we've mentioned when we studied the Colossian letter, that's the mindset that we need to be maintaining and always determining to have, a mind that is set upon the heavenly and not consumed with the earthly. But Christ had a mind interested also in the individual. Think about John chapter 4 and that beautiful exchange that took place there, that very fruitful exchange, as the patient Son of God dealt with a materialistically minded, morally deficient woman at the well, that Samaritan woman. And through his patience and his loving teaching, that woman was transformed in life and led so many others to come to hear the Christ. Because a tired and hungry Jesus, fully human as well as divine, was sitting at that well, thirsty, and yet patiently dealt with one in whom he was vitally interested. The value of one's soul was not only taught by Christ, for example, in Luke 15, in those beautiful parables about one and the importance of of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost boy, one precious 
commodity. He not only taught us the value of one and the preciousness of one soul, he demonstrated it with the woman at the well. And we must also never lose sight of the preciousness of the soul and that that one precious soul is worth more than all this world's goods combined. Matthew 16, 26. That's the passage from which we draw that axiom because Jesus there said, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world, loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Everything in this world put together does not even closely approximate the value of one soul. Christ had a mind that was meek, but one that was interested in spiritual things, and yes, deeply interested, intensely interested in the individual. But you know something, as we look at the end in the word mind, we also are reminded that Christ was narrow-minded. Now generally in our society, when someone calls you narrow-minded, that's not a compliment. That's not generally viewed as being complimentary if someone says you're, you're narrow-minded. But it should be a compliment if we consider the mind of Christ because his mind was narrow. That is, it was focused on the narrow way. And he admonished us to focus on the narrow way, to have the narrow mind of Christ. That is, a mind as narrow as Christ, no more and no less. Not to be more narrow-minded than was the Christ, or less narrow-minded, but to do what Christ told us to do in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few that find it. We've got to be narrow-minded in order to be on the narrow way. And yet we live in a time when there are those who are becoming much more broad-minded perhaps than ever in our lifetime. In the religious world at large, in the world at large, and yes, even as we have often discussed, even in the Lord's church. There are those who are loosing where Christ did not loose. There are those and have been those who are binding where Christ has not bound. But we need to be as narrow-minded as was the Christ. And we can be by simply following what the narrow-minded Son of God has left for us to follow. But let the D suggest devotion. The deepest possible devotion to a cause because Jesus was focused, totally devoted, as we have already said, to the doing the will of the Father. A devotion that manifests itself in a love unparalleled. A love that manifested itself in the giving of himself, as we'll talk about as we go through these verses tonight. The giving of himself. No one took his life. We'll point that out in our, in our study tonight. But he gave him because he was totally devoted to the cause for which he was willing to shed his sinless blood. And he admonished us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. That is devotion. A devotion that does require a self-emptying life, as we are looking at in this second chapter. So let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And as I said, in the immediate context, the humility of Christ, his willingness to come is under consideration here. But there is so much more to consider as we think about the mind of Christ, the meekness, 
the interest he had, the narrowness of that mind being just as narrow as the will of the Father, no more, no less, and that total devotion to the cause for which he was willing to shed his precious blood. Now Paul further expands the thought for us in verse 6 and says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Here is the clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. That Christ is from eternity. Before Abraham was, remember Jesus said, I was? No. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. The eternality of Christ was set forth by Christ himself. The Jews of his day knew that that's what he was setting forth, and that's why they became determined to crucify him. But John makes that affirmation, does he not, in the beginning of his gospel account in John 1, beginning at verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, the living Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's exactly what Paul is referring to here. The eternality of Christ, but not only eternal, but equal with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Yes, indeed, Christ was equal with God. But what was he willing to do? Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now notice this, made himself, we've alluded to it already, he made himself of no reputation. In other words, this was done voluntarily. No one took the life of the Son of God. He laid it down lovingly, and willingly. And he made that statement in John chapter 10, as it is recorded there, verses 17 and 18, where he said, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again, this command I have received from my Father. No one took the life of the Son of God. He laid it down voluntarily and lovingly for us, for you, and for me. Made himself of no reputation, as the New King James says. The American Standard here says, emptied himself. He emptied himself. Did he completely empty himself of, of his deity when he came to earth? No, indeed. No, indeed. But did he, did he sacrifice at that time some of the glory that he had with the Father? Indeed, he did. He was in a situation that we must never lose sight of from the standpoint of the glorious equality that he enjoyed with the Father, and yet the thought of his willingly laying down that glory, giving up that glory, and then experiencing what he experienced as a human being, 
should indeed evoke within us an overwhelming response of love and gratitude. It's no wonder that John wrote, we love him because he first loved us. Oh, how much meaning there is in those few words. But he emptied himself, as the American Standard said, made himself of no reputation. He gave up that equality with God and became subservient. And in John chapter 17, as he neared the end of his earthly existence, as he anticipated going home to the Father, part of what he prayed was this. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That clearly lets us know that he gave up so much for you and for me that he did not have to give up. It had to happen if we were going to be saved because he was the only sacrifice that could be offered in our behalf, but no one forced him to do it. And yet he gave up that equality, gave up that glory, and suffered beyond our comprehension, beyond our comprehension, as only deity could suffer as he hung upon Calvary, beyond our comprehension, in order that we might have the hope of eternal salvation. That's what Paul further expands upon in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man. That doesn't mean he just appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really a man. No, he means he appeared as a man. He came into this world as a human being as well as divine, the only begotten Son of God and became obedient to the point of death. And I have stressed this point in previous studies, even the death of the cross. Jesus Christ did not die peacefully in his sleep. And I've mentioned before that all of us know that unless the Lord comes again, we're going to die. And I dare say that not a single one of us here tonight, there's not a single person living who longs for a cruel and agonizing and horrifically painful and slow death. Who wants that? No one. No one. And yet that's the death. That's the death that Jesus died. And it is the death that he knew well before it occurred that he was going to die. I have a sermon I have preached here and elsewhere on the pain of Jesus. And in that sermon, I stress that a part of the pain of Jesus was not just the pain of the realization of Calvary, but it was the pain of the anticipation of Calvary. Because in Scripture, we have recorded for us the words of Jesus where he made it abundantly clear that he knew before he ever set his face to go to Jerusalem that when he got there, he would be betrayed, he would be scourged, he would be crucified. He would be separated, as it were, from the Father for a time and would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus Christ was willing to do that, to suffer the pain of the anticipation of Calvary and the realization of Calvary. 
Paul does not use these words casually when he adds, even the death of the cross. He died as a criminal, though he was sinless. He died as one in absolute and total shame, though he was shameless. He died as the rankest sinner on earth, though he was sinless. And he knew it was coming. And he prayed fervently three times in the garden as he actually sweat drops of blood. Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. That was the humanity. But the ultimate resignation was, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he went to the cross. Therefore, because he did, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. What name is that? We're not specifically told, but quite probably it is the designation Lord. Because the designation Lord indicates authority. One who has authority. And Jesus was given that authority. Remember Matthew 28, 18 through 20 when he commissioned the apostles in Matthew's account of the commission? All authority has been given to me in heaven and and on earth. And that's what the next verse says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. In other words, all beings. The angelic beings, those living on earth, and those under the earth generally thought to be perhaps the devil and his angels, or those now dead who will rise and face the Lord in judgment. And when that time comes, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what should happen now, Paul said. And that's what mankind must do or should do now in order to have any hope of salvation. Every tongue should confess with everything associated with that confession, not simply giving lip service but life service, a self-emptying life service to the very Son of God who gave so much for all of us. And we should sweeten our lips with that confession and then live our lives thereafter completely devoted to giving glory to God and thus glory to God the Father. For as we live the Christian life faithfully, we are glorifying Christ and God in life with the fervent determination that when death comes in whatever form, in whatever way, that I will also glorify God and Christ in death. How? By simply dying as a faithful child of God. Have you confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has all authority to the glory of God the Father. It's not confession alone, as we said, because Jesus himself said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say, Luke 6, 46. 
And in Matthew 7, 21, beginning, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so confession sometimes is used in a comprehensive sense, as are other steps in the plan of salvation, to indicate an accompanying obedience in every required step. And every required step to become a child of God and to glorify God in Christ in so doing involves a belief that leads you to repent of your sins, to confess Him as Lord in Christ, and then to be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. And then you rise in newness of life from that watery grave of baptism, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ that was shed on Calvary, bringing glory to Him in so doing, and determining to live for Him in a way that will continue to bring glory to Him until death separates you from this life or until the Lord comes again. If there's someone here tonight who has known the joy of salvation and has brought glory to God by becoming a Christian but knows tonight that you are no longer glorifying God by your life and need to come home to Him and to your first love, then we plead with you to do that. As we stand to sing, will you come?